The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. For years, really, almost all of my Christian life, I have been drawn like a moth to a flame to accounts of the persecuted church. Very early in my Christian life, when I was still a student at MIT, I began to read accounts of the trail of blood that led, has led from Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria, and now for 20 centuries, to the ends of the earth, to advance the kingdom of Christ. I've been transfixed by accounts of courageous brothers and sisters that faced the rage and might of one Roman emperor after another and with unflinching courage testified to their faith in Jesus as Lord of heaven and earth. They testified to their faith in Jesus, crucified and resurrected, who holds the keys of death and the grave. I have delighted in stories of these persecuted brothers and sisters. I've shared some of them, many of them from this pulpit. I remember sharing some years ago the story of the Roman noblewoman, Felicitas, who stood on trial for her life before a hostile Roman judge. And she said, while I live, I shall defeat you. And if you kill me in my death, I shall defeat you even more. I mean, to think that she is my sister in Christ... That I actually get to be part of the same family of God with a woman like that. I've heard of 40 shivering Roman soldiers who are members of the famed 12th Legion called the Legion of Thunder. In the year 320 they were stripped naked and left to die in a frozen lake in Sebastia in modern day Turkey because of their profession of faith in Christ. I've heard, as most of us have, of Tertullian's famous statement, the blood of martyrs is seed for the church. That's his version of while we live, we shall defeat you. And if you kill us in our death, we shall defeat you even more. I've yearned for these stories. I've yearned to read them and drink in their faith in Christ and their boldness and their powerful testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Their utter disregard, it seems... For personal safety, their unconcern for suffering and death. I remember one story in particular that moved me from the Romanian church, from the era of communist oppression under Ceausescu. And this Romanian pastor was arrested and dragged into a filthy, dark prison to be tortured until he should renounce his faith in Christ and surrender the names of all the Christians in their city. And he refused. Uh, despite the savage beatings they gave him day and night, he would not surrender his brothers and sisters in Christ, and he w- certainly wouldn't surrender his faith in Christ. And when they saw that he would never yield, when they saw that, they sadistically took a different tack. They arrested his teenage son and brought his son into that torture chamber with him. And when the pastor saw his son, he was immediately terrified uh, in a way that he'd never been in all the weeks that they had been beating on him. And they screamed that they would beat his son before his eyes until he renounced Christ and betrayed his fellow Christians. And when they began this savage beating, the pastor began to waver. He begged them to stop, but like wolves seeing blood on the snow, they only became more motivated and more enraged and more vicious. The son was no doubt about it clearly being beaten to his death. And the man could bear it no longer. He cried out for them to stop and said he'd give them whatever they wanted. Whereupon the son said to his father, begged him with the little strength he still had left, please don't do it. I'm ready to die and be with Jesus. Don't make me the son of a traitor. Whereupon the father had the strength to endure. The son was in fact beaten to death. And the father did not renounce his faith in Christ or surrender his brothers and sisters in Christ. Now these stories that I read, they sparkle like diamonds scattered along the the trail of redemptive history. They give me hope. They give me power. They give me conviction and shame for sin. 
It's hard for, I think, any healthy Christian to read these and then you compare it with your own level of boldness and your willingness to suffer and, and to not feel a sense of conviction and shame. But that just, in a healthy way, makes, should make us want to be more bold, more faithful with the short time that we have left. They make me want to suffer for Jesus more than I've ever done before, that he would grant me the privilege. And these stories have flowed uh, right down to the present day. They're going on right now in the world around us. And we know more and more about the persecuted church. Knowing that I was going to preach on this church at Smyrna, this small persecuted church of Smyrna, I've been saturating myself in these accounts over the last number of weeks. I've been reading books like Extreme Devotion, which is the sequel to an earlier book called Jesus Freaks. Uh, don't be put off by the title. But it was put out just as an account, uh, very powerful accounts of uh, martyrs and, uh, going back to the beginning of the, of the church. I've read portions of a book called By Their Blood, which is an account of 20th century martyrs for Christ, organized geographically around the world. And last night um, at about 11.30, I finished uh, watching Nick Ripkin's documentary called The Insanity of God. Why was I staying up so late on Saturday night before preaching? I need to be in bed, but I was totally captivated by that. And I totally reworked the beginning of my sermon as a result. Which is usually not a, bad, uh, not a good idea at midnight on Sunday morning. But Nick Ripkin is an amazing man. After he and his wife left their son to, uh, lost their son to disease while on the mission field. It wasn't a case of persecution, but definitely they would have had better medical care if they hadn't been on the mission field and he died. He reached a certain crisis of his own faith. And he wanted to begin asking the question, is it all real? It wasn't a, a doctrinal and notational side. It was just experiential. Is Christianity real? Is Christ risen from the dead with transforming power? Is that at work now in lives around the world? And so he was drawn to the persecuted church. He felt an instinct, a right instinct, I think, that he would get the answer there. And his quest has led him all over the world. It began uh, with an opportunity to go with, I think, the Red Cross to Somalia for a month. And uh, the bloody streets of anarchy in that dark country, terrifying country, he said it was the closest place to hell he'd ever been on earth, or probably ever would be. The terror was real as aggressive Muslim warlords unleashed young men, teenage warriors, with vehicles that had machine guns welded to the roofs of the vehicles. And they just scattered terror every, everywhere they went. The, everyone was terrified of these people, but especially Christians whom they specifically targeted for death. Ripkin met uh, a group of significant leaders, evangelical church leaders, Somalian leaders, and befriended them. They befriended him. They opened themselves up to him. Uh, they prayed together. They shared communion together, Lord's Supper together. And he said that they were partaking in communion as if it were their last supper, which it actually turned out to have been, essentially. Over the next year, all of them were dead. All of them. Ripken moved on in his search to Russia where he began interviewing church leaders who had suffered bitter persecution in prison by the KGB during the era of the Soviet Union. One man had been arrested for pastoring a secret church. Church got a little too large. In persecuted countries, you're not looking for a mega church. There's so many small... Because once it gets to a certain level, it's going to attract the attention of the state apparatus... And that's what happened to him. He was arrested, thrown in prison. And he's thrown in a, in a very s severe prison. The kind of prison reserved for the worst criminal elements in Russia. And he was beaten again and again by the guards. But every morning he woke up and would just sing, stand up and sing in his cell, what Ripken called his heart song. It was just a, a Russian hymn that was his favorite. And he sang the same one every morning in a loud voice. Bringing s just jeers and derision from these hardened criminals. They try to throw things at him and yell at him and they were rejecting him, but he would sing this song every morning. Well, one day the prison guards found a significant portion of scripture in his cell and they dragged him out of the cell, clearly intending to beat him to his death at a post in the courtyard uh, where these kinds of things happened all the time. That, at that point, something amazing happened. All of these male prisoners, 1,500 of them, stood up in their cells and began singing the song he'd been singing for months. 
in a united voice. And the guard just let go of this pastor and just looked at him like, who are you? What kind of man are you? Like he had had electric shock on him. And he said, I am a Christian. I am a son of the living God. Ripken's travels took him to China where he was led into the secret assembly of house church leaders. The church in China knows all about vicious persecution at the hands of communist government leaders. 40% of the leaders of the house churches in China have been in prison at least three years. They call it their seminary. That's where they go to learn to be pastors. The church in China, though, actually has thrived in persecution. When the communists took over in 1948, they expelled Western missionaries. And estimates put the the size of the Protestant church in China at somewhere between 400,000 to 700,000 people. In 1983, when China began to open again to the West... Christian leaders in the West wondered if there, were, there would be any Christians at all in China. Imagine the stunned surprise of the evangelical world to find out estimates are at that point were well over 10 million believers in Christ. Now the number stands at 10 times that. Maybe over 100 million evangelical believers in China. So the church has flourished in persecution. Now Ripken... Uh, interviewed these house church leaders and they peppered him with questions about the rest of the world. They honestly wanted to know if Jesus, the story of Jesus, had made it to any other country or was it just in China? That was the level of their ignorance of what was going on around the world. They were delighted to find out that there were Christians in other countries. Delighted to find out that it extended to places all over the earth. But they asked, are any of them being persecuted as we are? And so Ripken started telling the stories that he had already been developing, especially in Somalia. And they sat there for two hours listening to his stories about Somalia and other places. Like they were statues. Like they were carved from stone. They didn't move. Like they were hardly breathing. The next morning he was wakened to the sound of people crying out. And he thought that the police had found them and were dragging them out. But actually he went out and found that they were all just praying. They had their hands lifted up and they are praying fervently. And he couldn't understand any of the Chinese that they were speaking. The Mandarin they were speaking. But he heard this one word over and over. Somalia, Somalia, Somalia. So he found out from his translator. They were so moved by the stories of persecution in Somalia. That they committed to get up one hour earlier than they already were getting up. To pray for the persecuted church in Somalia and around the world for the rest of their lives. And they began that morning. The final story that Ripken zeroed in on was a man that he called the toughest man I have ever met. He would not say where this man was from. But I was clever, alright. They showed a map of Central Asia and right in the center was Afghanistan. Kind of more lit up than the other countries around Hint, hint. He wouldn't say where he's from, but he said that this man had fought with, the, with other Muslim warriors in his country against an invading army that had come in. Well, it doesn't take long before you know exactly what we're talking about. It was the Russians that invaded, and this man was a Mujahideen leader who had led a, a cadre of, of fighters in the mountains of Afghanistan in the name of Allah. And he stopped counting the number of soldiers he'd killed with his own hands. Bloody deaths at 150. Probably way, way more than that. But what happened was in the years that followed that war. He had recurring nightmares of his hands soaked in blood. Soaked in blood. And and in his nightmare he was trying to wash his hands. And he could never get the blood off no matter what he did. Tried scrubbing his hands with sand. with, With other, it just nothing would change and then it got even worse he started having these kinds of visions during the day of his hands bloody bloody all the time then one night he had a different dream and it was uh, a dream of a man radiant in white radiant in light with nail marks in his hands and his feet and wound in his side and scars on his forehead and he said I am Isa that's uh, Arabic for Jesus I am the Messiah and if you search for me you will find me I am the only one who can remove the blood from your hands Well, there were no missionaries or no Christians in that country, nowhere to turn, but somehow scraps of the gospel message got to him sufficient for him to come to Christ. He did come to Christ, and then he felt strongly led by Christ to start reaching out to the former warriors who were now fighting a different war. And he went into the mountains, and he found some of even the soldiers that had used to fight with him. 
But when they emptied his backpack and found Bibles in there, they immediately started to beat him and were ready to kill him right there on the spot. What he didn't know is one of them had come to his secret faith in Christ, like a Nicodemus, etc. And he spoke up for this man and saved his life, got him out of there, you know, on the, on the pretext of saying we can trace his contacts, who's getting him the Arabic Bibles, etc. And we'll get them all. And so they listened to that and let him go. This man is now continuing his evangelistic ministry in the mountains of his country. Again, the country was never named. Ripken's final point in his documentary, The Insanity of God, is this. The gospel continues to be authenticated, proven to be true, by what people are willing to suffer for Christ. That's kind of the main point of the documentary. The gospel continues to be authenticated by what people are willing to suffer for Christ. So as we come to Revelation 2, 8 through 11, we come to an account of a suffering church, the church of Smyrna. And I think to some degree, Jesus' letter to that church stands in front of all Christians for all time. And effectively, Jesus is asking, what am I worth to you? What are you willing to suffer to take my gospel message to people who are not yet converted? What are we willing to suffer to witness to this resurrecting power? Jesus said very plainly in John 12, 24, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies... It remains by itself a single seed. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. So godly men and women, youth, boys and girls, from the beginning of the church have been willing to pay the price to advance the gospel. From the Roman, the era of the Roman persecution right on to our present day. Now, this church in Smyrna was one of the earliest examples of a church crushed by Rome... Crushed by the devil, crushed by false Jews who claimed to be Jews but really weren't because they were rejecting Christ, but were a synagogue of Satan. One of the sweetest fragrances in the ancient world was myrrh. Of course, you've heard of it. It was used for burials, stunningly costly. It was there present at both Jesus' birth and at his death. It was one of the gifts of the Magi, and it was there when he was wrapped up in those grave clothes. The word Smyrna is used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew word myrrh. Now, myrrh is a resinous substance, a natural gum that bleeds from the myrrh tree when it's sliced, when it's wounded. So people harvesting myrrh slice wounds in the branches and allow the sap to bleed out. After it bleeds out, then it immediately becomes hard and glossy and forms itself in these sticky balls. And then those... Those gummy balls of myrrh are crushed or burned to give off the, to release the fragrant aroma. This is an apt picture of a small, faithful church in Smyrna. A beautiful living parable of the suffering church throughout history. The church is wounded, it bleeds, it's crushed, it's burned and gives off this beautiful fragrance for the glory of God. And God uses these sufferings and this incredible fragrance to purify his church and to advance it. To make progress in the internal journey of holiness and the external journey of gospel advance. That's how he does it, by suffering. It seems a paradox, but the more uh, the church is persecuted in this world, the purer and stronger it becomes. It's a lesson that we who are so used to a comfortable relationship with the surrounding world in 21st century America would do well to take to heart. Now in this brief letter from Jesus Christ to Smyrna, there's not a single word of criticism of the church. None. Only a command to be faithful unto death and many encouragements from Christ. None of this was an accident. To some degree, Christ is always putting his churches on display. Remember the image from Revelation 1 when Jesus is moving through the seven golden lampstands. And he's in that priestly robe and he's ministering to these seven churches. And they're on lamp stands. They're on a platform. They're up on a platform. And Jesus has said, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it up on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus is putting them, he sets them up on a pedestal. He puts them on display. 
And he wants everyone to see them, not just their surrounding neighbors. And not even just their own generation. But because of the Holy Spirit's authoring of this letter and giving it to us. And we're told, he who has an ear, let, it, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. They have, their testimony is echoed through 20 centuries of, of, of church history. It encourages us today. The suffering of that local church, the suffering of any local church is, is never an accident. It doesn't mean that Christ has lost his power. It doesn't mean that he doesn't love that church anymore. It doesn't mean that Satan has outwitted him or outflanked him on the battlefield. Not at all. Christ actually intentionally was setting Smyrna up on a pedestal to shine in that region. Now, Smyrna, the city of Smyrna then, is Izmir now. I have a good friend uh, that ministered in Izmir. He's going to be preaching to you all on Easter Sunday. I'll be in Cameroon. He's a good friend and he's been faithful uh, there in Izmir. And many others are are witnessing in that area. It's five miles up the coast and due north from Ephesus. Ancient city. Perhaps as early as 3000 BC. Evidence of, of a city there. Smyrna had long been a staunch ally of Rome had tremendous loyalty to Rome, even won a kind of a contest in that, in that area to build a temple to uh, the emperor Tiberius in the year AD 25. So their loyalty to Caesar was a matter of both civic pride and prosperity. So they're very loyal to the cult of Rome there in Smyrna. It was a beautiful place located right on the coast, great port. We have no idea how the church in Smyrna was planted. No record of it in the book of Acts. But probably in Acts 19. It says the entire region of Asia Minor heard the word of God from Paul's ministry in Ephesus. That's probably where it came from. Now look at verses 8 and 9. It says to the angel of the church in Smyrna write. These are the words of him who is the first and the last. Who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty. Yet you are rich. So the word for afflictions here in the original language means pressure. Literally means pressure. You're being crushed. And so Jesus begins his letter here to them by speaking of their afflictions. This is their time of of testing and it's going to get worse actually. Now what are the reasons for these afflictions? First and foremost, their commitment to Jesus Christ. The King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Secondly, their refusal... To submit to the fanatic cult of Rome. And to burn incense to Caesar. And the presence of this synagogue of Satan. That we'll talk about in a moment. But Jews that were slandering them and persecuting them. That's why they're having trouble. So at this point. And this is going to be a major theme. Throughout the book of Revelation. Not just here in the letters to the seven churches. But throughout. Is Christ and Caesar. The battle between Christ and Rome. The battle is joined vigorously at this point. Things had gotten much worse when the emperor Domitian had declared it to be a capital offense in Asia Minor to refuse to offer the annual sacrifice of incense to the emperor. This this burning of incense to the emperor was a declaration of open loyalty to Rome. And the emperor demanded it of all the citizens in that region of the world. So you made a, uh, uh, took a small pinch of incense and you went to a specific temple and you observed burning and saying Caesar is Lord and then you got a certificate. And if you didn't have that certificate, you were liable to punishments. Even, even to the point of death. Obviously, this was the essence of the affliction that Smyrna faced for their loyalty to King Jesus would not allow them to worship Caesar as a god or say the slogan, Caesar is Lord. They had to say, no, Jesus is Lord. So it, it just came down to a simple uh, choice, Christ or Caesar, and they wouldn't yield. Now, Caesar threatened physical death. But Jesus, ultimately, God threatens eternal death in hell. So we're told in several places in the Gospels, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that there's nothing more they can do to you. But I'll tell you who to fear. Fear the one who has the power to destroy both soul and body in hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So to burn the incense, all you had to do was say Caesar is Lord, but Christians could never do that. They could not violate their faith. They would only say Jesus is Lord. And so this brought them into great affliction. The surrounding citizens would see this as a disgraceful lack of patriotism. 
if it went unchecked, it could threaten the city's special relationship with Rome. Now, along with this, as I've mentioned, is Jewish opposition to the gospel. There was, as Jesus said here, a synagogue of Satan there in Smyrna. We'll see it again in the seven letters. But look at verse 9. He says, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, the Jews had been, as a group, given an exemption from needing to burn the incense to Caesar. The Jews exploited their privilege and they used it against this hated sect of the Nazarenes, as they called it, Christians. They curried favor with the Gentile overlords by basically luring the Christians into the temptation to deny their faith in Christ. Whereupon they would have them in one sense. But if they refused to burn, then they would turn them in to the authorities. They would speak about it. Hence the word slander. More on that in a minute. Now, Jewish hostility to the gospel happened in Jesus' lifetime. Uh, especially in the gospel of John. It's very, very plain that Jesus is dealing with Jewish leaders who reject his claim to be the Messiah. They reject his claim to be the Son of God. They will not believe in him, and so he's rejected by his own people. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. We see it also hugely in the life of Paul, the ministry of Paul, definitely in the book of Acts. Everywhere it seemed Paul went. He went first to the Jews, went to the synagogue. There would be division. The Jews would start kicking up trouble for Paul and eventually would get him expelled from the city. If not, they were trying to get him killed. Some Jews even took a a vow of, of starving themselves until they could murder Paul. That's a level of commitment they had. Now this Jewish opposition to the gospel spread way into the second century AD, even beyond in terms of Smyrna. For when their godly leader Polycarp, who we'll talk about in a moment, uh, was burned at the stake, it was the Jews who were the most eager to gather the wood for the burning. Now Jesus for this church at Smyrna mentions four specific trials. Poverty, slander, prison, and death. First of all, poverty. Look at verse 9. I know your poverty, he says. Undoubtedly, this refers to economic poverty that came on them because they were Christians. Even during Jesus' lifetime, the Jewish authorities had said that if anyone said that Jesus was the Messiah, he'd be put out of the synagogue. What that meant was disconnection from society. You probably then couldn't buy or sell. You couldn't make a living. And so it became immediately difficult to live in that situation. I think the same mentality then went over in the Gentile world. If you didn't play ball, if you didn't do the pagan thing the way that your other Gentile neighbors do, you would be ostracized. And you would not be able to make a living. And so there's definitely poverty involved. And beyond this, the persecution would impoverish, uh, impoverish them. If you're arrested and put in prison, you can't make money. You can't do anything. You become a drain that point. Also, as it says in Hebrews chapter 10 about some other persecuted Christians, he said you sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possession. So that, that's the nature of their poverty. Because they were Christians, they were poor. Secondly, slander. He said, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Now the word slander has to do with a false accusation. And I think what the Jews were doing as I just mentioned is they were turning the Christians in. They were saying their names to the authorities and that's how they knew who to arrest. Now the work we're going to talk more about synagogue of Satan in in a a future letter. But uh, they were doing the work of the devil. The word Satan Uh, means in Hebrew, accuser. And so they're just doing that accusing work. Also, Satan is a liar and the father of lies. Thirdly, we have prison. He says in verse 10, I tell you the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer affliction for 10 days. So they lost their freedom as a result of these slanders. They were put in Roman prisons, which were horrible places. They were dark, they stank. There was no food, no water, no medical treatment, nothing. It was horrible. There was no habeas corpus. The authorities didn't need to give any probable cause for you being incarcerated. You didn't need a, uh, there was no requirement for a speedy trial. There was no possibility of a bond that you would get out until your trial. Many cases you're just thrown in jail and and they basically effectively threw away the key. They forgot about you. So they didn't execute you but effectively your life was over. And then finally death. He says in verse 10, be faithful even to death and I will give you Uh, The crown of life. So often throughout the history of the early church, death at the hands of legal authorities was common. 
the blood of martyrs is seed for the church. Christians died so that others might spring up from their bloody witness. We're going to see this later in Revelation 12, 11. The Christians, courageous, bold Christians, overcame Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Now, probably the most famous story of a martyr in the ancient world was that of Polycarp. Polycarp was the bishop, overseer, elder of the church there in Smyrna. He had been, it seems, by church tradition, discipled by the Apostle John. By the year 156 AD, he was a very old man at this point. He was arrested. He had fled the city at the begging of his church. They didn't want him. He was perfectly willing to be arrested. But he went out of the city, but they tracked him down, found him. He made no effort to flee at that point. Actually invited his captors in for a meal. Showed them hospitality. Fed them. Gave them drink. Asked if he might have some time to pray. They granted it to him. Prayed for two hours. Those are some patient guards. As a matter of fact, they were very favorably disposed toward him. The entire time that they drove him to the amphitheater, they were pleading with him to recant. Pleading with him. They wanted to save his life. He had a great reputation in that community. Well, he gets pulled up in front of the proconsul in the amphitheater and he says, Respect your years, swear by Caesar, burn the incense, revile Christ and I'll set you free. And Polycarp said very famously, for 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? It's one of the most famous statements ever made by a martyr. The proconsul said, I have wild beasts. Polycarp said, bring them. You get to choose how I die. I'm going to die today. He said, all right, well, if you disdain the beasts, I will burn you with fire. Polycarp said, you threaten a fire that burns for a little while, then it's extinguished. But God threatens a fire that burns forever. But what are you waiting for? And so immediately the trial was over. Proconsul ordered him to be burned. He refused to be fastened to the stake. But instead prayed, O Lord, Almighty God, the Father of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have come to know you. I thank you for counting me worthy this day and hour of sharing in the cup of Christ among the number of your martyrs. The fire was lit, but a gust of wind actually blew the flame away from him, actually greatly increasing his torture. Whereupon a sympathetic guard ran him through with a sword and ended his life. Now, this is the kind of witness that Christ was calling on Christians to make there in Smyrna and indeed around the world. This is really a timeless call from Christ to suffer for him. Look at verse 10. Be faithful. Be faithful to me. Keep your promise to me. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you a crown of life. Suffering is foundational to our Christian faith. We talk about the internal journey of holiness, the external journey of gospel advance. Neither one happens without suffering. It's impossible to make any progress in holiness and any progress in spreading the gospel without suffering. Unless a kernel of wheat falls in the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. If it dies, it brings forth much fruit. This is the mark, therefore, of a true church. The more faithful a church is, the more likely it will be to suffer persecution. In the parable of the seed and the soils, the rocky soil hears the word, receives it with joy, has a happy initial reaction to the gospel. But when trouble or persecution because of the word comes, they quickly fall away. So a church made up of cowards is no church at all. Now we, here in America, we are overwhelmingly tempted to compromise. So I'm just stopping right here in the middle of this point of the message and just say what about us what about us how is the church in america how is the church in durham how is this church first baptist church in durham on this christianity is becoming increasingly unpopular in the united states i'm sure you've noticed our views on the exclusivity of christ he being the only way of salvation seems to be incredibly arrogant to people our views on gay marriage and transgenderism are seen, ironically, to be sick, mentally ill, and hateful. Our views on the inerrancy of Scripture is laughable in the light of science's advances. Our views on sexual purity, the unlawfulness of all sex outside marriage, is seen to be prudish and outmoded and ridiculous. Our commitment to life, contrary to abortion, and euthanasia 
seems to make us hateful to the freedom of women to make choices and the freedom of others to die with dignity. The list goes on and on. We're under constant assault towards sin and compromise. The biggest question is, will we be faithful to share Christ with lost people? All these other issues are small compared to that. Are we willing to speak up to a lost person and say something about Jesus this week? We seem to be ashamed of Christ. In Mark 8, 38, Jesus said, If anyone's ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his Father's glory with the angels. So Christ gives comfort to his suffering church. Look at what he says in verse 10. He gives him a clear command. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And, you'll be, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. And effectively, Jesus is saying, be willing to die for me. Be willing to die for me. Be faithful, even if they're killing you. Be faithful, even to that. This is the hardest command I think Jesus could ever give. Greater love is no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. I'm asking, Jesus is saying, I'm asking greatest love of you. That you lay down your life for me if called to do it. And I believe this command is timeless. Not just for this church at Smyrna. For all of us. Now, he says, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Faith and fear are frequently juxtaposed as opposites in the New Testament. Faith drives out fear. So do not fear. And, and think about this. What you're about to suffer but haven't begun yet. And think about that. I mean, a suffering that hasn't come yet but is coming, that's fearful, isn't it? It's the kind of thing we get afraid of. Like sometime this week you will suffer greatly. Don't know when. It's like, huh. I mean, how would you go on? But don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. You know that the devil wants to harm you. Others have already been thrown in prison. Devil's coming after you. Your fears of the unknown rise. Take your imagination to high levels. You start to have trouble breathing and you're, you break out in sweat and you start being anxious. Don't do that. Don't be afraid. Psalm 56, 3 and 4. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. I will trust in you. In God whose word I praise. In God I trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Psalm 56, 3 and 4. The strongest words in the Bible on this, is I've already quoted one version of this once, but Isaiah 8 tells us to fear God more than we fear anything man can do. Isaiah 8, 12 through 14 says, Do not fear what they fear. Do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And He will be a sanctuary for you. So the more we see the invisible, eternal, majestic, enthroned God, the less we'll be afraid of people. Ultimately, we need to focus on Christ above all. Look at what he says about himself at verse, at verse 8. He said, these are the words of him who is the first and the last. That's a claim to deity. Basically, he's saying, I am the point of history. I am the beginning of history. I'll be the last of history. It's the very thing God the Father had claimed in Revelation 1.8 when he said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus is claiming deity. He is the first and the last. And nothing can stop his purposes from happening. The, the flow of history will go on and nothing's going to stop it. And also, as the first and the last, he's the same. Hebrews 13, 8. The same yesterday and today for, and forever. Focus on the timeless, unchanging Jesus. And he's the death conqueror. Look what he says. These are the words, verse 8, of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. He's the death conqueror. I hold the keys of death and Hades. I love that. He said, I died and behold, I'm alive. Isn't that beautiful? Behold. Just look at me, I'm alive. What are you afraid of? I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. He died, it says in Hebrews 2, to destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. We're set free from fear of death. Should be. So what are we afraid of? Some years ago I preached an Easter message from Hebrews 2. And I just gave a series of quotes of saints about death and how we need fear nothing at all. 
Spurgeon said this, for these saints to die has been so different a thing from what they expected it to be, so lightsome, so joyous, they have been so unloaded of all cares, have felt so relieved instead of burden that they've wondered whether this could actually be the monster that they've been afraid of all their days. They find it to be a pin's prick when they feared it would be a sword thrust. It's the shutting of the eye on earth and the opening of it in heaven. Thomas Goodwin, Puritan pastor, said, Ah, is this dying? This? How have I dreaded as an enemy this smiling friend? William Preston said, Blessed be God. Though I shall change my place, I will not change my company. Charles Wesley said, I shall be satisfied with thy likeness. Satisfied? Satisfied. Just said that over and over. That's a good way to die. Adoniram Judson, who suffered more than we can possibly imagine in the spread of the gospel, was sick with the illness that would take him out of this world. He said, I'm not weary of this world. I'm not weary of my work. But when he calls me, I'll be like a schoolboy on the final day of school. Ready to go. And William Everett just said, glory, 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 for 25 minutes until he was finally out of this world. Freed from the fear of death. Christ has the power to do that, to free us. And he knows our suffering in detail. I know, I know your afflictions. I know your poverty. I know the slander of the Jews. I'm close to the brokenhearted in heart. And I save those who are crushed in spirit, Psalm 34, 18. I'm acutely aware of how many tears you have wept in prison or for those in prison. Psalm 56, 8 says, you have kept count of my tossings. You put my tears in your bottle. Are they not written in your book? I'm very aware of what you're going through. And Christ is not just aware of your sufferings. He orchestrated them. He's not like, oh, you're suffering. Well, let's make the best of it. He orchestrates the afflictions of his people to put them on display. And he controls them. Look at verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you into prison to test you for 10 days. It's measured. Who gets put in prison, right? And how long they're going to have to suffer. Some of you will go in prison, not all of you. And it's going to be a narrow time, 10 days. Not literally 10, I don't think, but just a very short amount of time. God is faithful, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He will not tempt you beyond what you can bear. But with the temptation will make a way of escape so that you can bear up under it. He's not going to allow the devil to do more than God than Christ wills. And he is purposeful in our sufferings. He's going to put you in, t- in prison, it says, to test you. Luke 22, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you, all of you, like wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. And so these trials, 1 Peter 1, have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Praise, glory, and honor for yourself, yes, Romans 2, but also praise, glory, and honor for Jesus for saving you and also other people who are saved when they watch how you suffer. So Christ has rewards for the suffering church. He says in verse 9, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. Isn't that beautiful? You appear poor, but you're actually rich. Later he's going to say to the church at Laodicea, you appear rich, you're actually destitute. So you appear poor, but you're actually rich. He's clearly referring to the inestimable treasure waiting for these martyrs when they get to heaven. Heavenly treasure. And what is the essence of that treasure? Rewards from God, which I believe is praise from God. Meditate on that. Praise from God. He will praise you. He will honor you. He will say, well done, you good and faithful servant. You are faithful unto death. He's going to praise you. And and he talks about this crown. Be faithful even to the point of death. And I'll give you a crown of life. It's an emblem of achievement. It's an emblem of honor. And you're not going to be hurt at all by the second death. The second death is hell. You're not going to go to hell. You're going to be freed from that. You're going to go to heaven. And I'll give you emblems of honor And you're going to take those crowns and you're going to put them at my feet. And you'll give me full credit for all of your honor and glory. But it'll be yours to give. 
because I'll give it to you. I'll give you a crown of life. I don't believe all Christians are going to be equally honored in heaven. Not at all. If I keep on living the kind of life that I'm living right now, I will not receive these kinds of honors. I want to be faithful in my life. But I'm just telling you, church history is filled with people who have suffered far more than me or most of you. Remember John and James said, grant that we may sit at your right and your, and your left at your, in your kingdom. Remember that? Oh, that's a bold ask. I want to sit right next to you in your kingdom. And you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink from the cup I'm going to drink? You see how it's linked to suffering? The more you suffer, the more honor. The ones, brothers and sisters, that suffer the most get honored the most. But we'll all be perfectly happy in heaven. Perfectly happy, but not equally honored. Thus did Jesus say, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now as I close, I just want to give you some quick applications beyond the ones I've already given. The first and greatest has to be to make an appeal directly to any of you who are outside of Christ. To any of you who are non-Christians, who are here today. These letters to the seven churches were written from Jesus to Christians. And so as I said last week, and I'll keep saying, if you're not a Christian, you're listening in to somebody else's mail. But it could be yours if you will just repent and trust Christ. God sent his son into the world to live a sinless life and to die an atoning death on the cross that you and me, sinners like us, can be forgiven. Remember that man that had that blood on his hands? He couldn't get it off. Jesus can cleanse us and purify us of all our sins. Trust in Christ. Secondly, understanding the main message here is in this world you will have trouble. But overcome the world. Take heart and overcome the world through faith in Christ. The more courageously and boldly we testify to Christ, the more the gospel advance. James Merritt, president of the Southern Baptist Convention a number of years ago, a pastor in Georgia, said this. I don't know where he got his information, but he said this. 90% of evangelical Christians in America, effectively born in the church, raised in the church, married in the church, living in the church, raised their family in the church, get old in the church and die in the church. 90% of them never open their mouths and say anything to a lost person about Jesus. 90%. Now, Chinese Christians, when asked in Ripken's documentary, when asked about remaining silent in the face of persecution, they believe that that when you are being persecuted and opposed and you remain silent and you choose not to say anything about Jesus, you have identified with the persecutors. It's basically light and darkness, good and evil, life and death. You've associated with the enemies. If you're silent, you need to speak. Thirdly, Learn about and pray for the persecuted church. Remember the Chinese Christians added one hour a day praying for the persecuted church in Somalia. It says in Hebrews 13.3, Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Study about the persecuted church. Get the book Extreme Devotion or Jesus Freaks. That's an easy title to remember, isn't it? Jesus Freaks. So just get it on Amazon and read these stories. It's incredible. Or get the Insanity of God, this DVD, okay? Uh, And watch it. Learn about Voice of the Martyrs and Persecution Project and other groups that are are making the the persecuted church uh, uh, people more and more aware of the persecuted church. Just learn about what's going on. The worst persecuting nation on earth is North Korea communist country however 41 of the 50 worst nations for persecution on earth are dominated by islam 41 out of 50 understand fourthly the unity of the church we are one body that's how i prayed that's how we began when one part suffers the whole part suffers it's not different churches we're part of that we show that by prayer and by concern and by learning but We're part. When one part is honored, the whole part's honored. So when those brothers and sisters get huge, amazing crowns in heaven and we don't get them, we're going to be so thrilled and happy in heaven. Why? Because there's no bad stuff in heaven. No discontent, no pride, no arrogance. So we will totally celebrate the achievement of those brothers and sisters in Christ. But the more we do that kind of thing now, the better. Let's honor those who are worthy of honor. 
Fifth, delight in the glory of a church that advances by the blood of its messengers. Colossians 1, Paul says, I rejoice in what was suffered for you. And I fill up in my flesh what's still lacking in regard to the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. There's nothing lacking in the atoning blood of Christ for atonement. But what's lacking is the application of the atonement to the elect who are as yet unconverted. And you know who does the persecuting in the world? Unconverted people. That makes sense, doesn't it? Unconverted people. They are in two categories. Unconverted elect and unconverted not elect. We will never know who the non-elect are in this world. Never. We always have good hopes that the persecuting people might someday come to Christ. So let's delight in the glory of that. Sixthly, let's give money to the persecuted suffering church. You have an opportunity to do that this very week. If you look in your bulletins, you can take them now or whatever. There's a story about a famine in East uh, Africa. There are five nations. The United Nations says this is the greatest humanitarian crisis since World War II. The United Nations is saying that. The level of starvation, they have certain criteria for calling it star- starvation a crisis. It's way beyond their markers. Five nations in particular are starving to death. They are Somalia, Sudan, Yemen, uh, Nigeria, and Kenya. Those five. The overwhelming majority of cause for it is the Muslim extremists that are trying to take over countries like Somalia and all that, and the people cannot work. But there's also a drought on top of all that right now. So those five nations are suffering. This is a direct issue of the persecuted church suffering and unable to to even eat or live. Baptist Global uh, Relief, BGR, is in there. You can give this afternoon to them to relieve uh, our brothers and sisters that are starving to death in East Africa. And finally, if I could just urge you, be ready to suffer yourselves. The small persecution is not insignificant. Jesus said, blessed are you when people insult you and falsely say things against you. That's not a minor thing. Be bold. Share Christ with someone this week. Get outside your comfort zone. Realize the comfort zone is not from Christ. It's from Satan. Get outside the comfort zone and share Christ. Close with me in prayer if you would. Father, thank you for the things that we've learned about the suffering church. Thank you for the examples, the stories of their courage, their boldness and faith. Thank you, O Lord, for the church at Smyrna and the way that they were exhorted by Christ to be faithful unto death. Help us to be willing to be faithful, to deny ourselves daily and take up the cross daily. Help us to fight the good fight of holiness, of private holiness, of purity, so that we can get stronger to fight the external battle of witnessing. Give us strength and courage, Lord. Thank you for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray that you'd strengthen those in Somalia and those in North Korea and those in China and other places that are being persecuted for their faith. Give them strength. Help their faith not to fail. And help us, O Lord, to be more faithful in praying for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.